With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Chuck Palahniuk is one of my all-time favorite writers. We dive deep into the writing process. Here he is. At one point you say, my point is, how can I ask you to trust me on this when I don't even trust myself? What exactly did you mean by that? Did you call into question the story's truth? And we have to wonder about that? You know, that is a place where I'm saying, I'm not going to hit you over the head with this. Mm. I'm going to leave it up to you. It's almost kind of a paper tiger. I'm saying, you. I'm going to make this enormous case, present you with this enormous sort of body of evidence but ultimately you're the one that makes a decision. And so it, it, uh, it allows the reader almost a token uh, independence. Joan Didion does this really well. She is so beautiful at kind of stating a case, but then ultimately she you know, acknowledges that it's the reader who has to make the, the final judgment. And it's like you would do with a jury. You, you might ask them to make a certain verdict, but you cannot tell them to make that verdict. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of a, an elegant way of acquiescing to their, you know, acknowledging their independence. Yeah, it's interesting. You, uh, with the Joan Dinian example, it reminds me of the story, I, I'm pretty sure it was in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, uh, that collection of essays where forget the exact scene. You'll, you'll probably remember where she's observing something that's really horrific about a young girl <laughs> and she's not personally reacting in the essay. And that was almost a later criticism of her. Like, why doesn't she get involved? And again, I, I think what you're, like, what you're saying is these stories are not just about the story. They're really also about what's going on with the writer but the reader, when they're reading it, it's about what's going on with them. It's not even about the writer. They have to view it with their own eyes and come to their own conclusions. Like, have you ever written something where um, people just did not like 
what you wrote, not the style or not the quality of it, but they just hated you for saying something and <laughs> wanted you to know. Oh, that's, that's a little part of everything. There were lines in Fight Club that were so incendiary that, that people were just furious about them. Uh, and there's still the lines that people go to to kind of, you know, uh, deride the book. Uh, there was one line in Fight Club, just, and I thought it was innocuous. It was describing the kind of guys you would see in Fight Club. And the line was, the men you see in Fight Club uh, were the generation raised by women or something like that to some extent. And every single mother, I think, in America jumped on that line and hated the book just because of that one line or hated the movie because of that one line. I think that was the Rose, Rosie O'Donnell case, you know, that she she was your former neighbor, wasn't she? You you lived in the same building. Uh, no, I don't know. Actually, Joan Didion was a former neighbor but I, and Joseph Heller, but I don't know about Rosie O'Donnell, actually. Uh, Nora Ephron had lived in that building. Nora Ephron, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nora Ephron also. And uh, Rosie O'Donnell, the week before the movie came out, she went on air and she gave the entire plot. She spoiled the entire movie and she advocated that people should not go to this movie because she told the twist. She told everything that was going to happen. And she's a, you know, she was very pissed off by that line. So I try to have at least one of those lines in everything, a line that will really, really be a, a step too far because I come from the punk generation where unless you take that step too far that you're really uncomfortable with, then you're later going to regret when you get to be 59 years old, you're going to think, why the hell didn't I go there when I was 32? Why was I holding back? Why was I such a chicken shit? And so there's got to be that step too far, that line that really ticks people off, or I will beat myself up for the rest of my life. And it's, it's not just a line constructed to piss people off. It's, it's, it's an inner, it's a truth for you. Yeah. It's what you felt when writing that or, or always feel. And, but you know, it's, you have that feeling. It's a little over the edge that some people are going to react to this. And then when they do react to it, like with Rosie O'Donnell and that example, like that, she's putting her hand in your pocket and taking money out of it. Potentially. You don't, you don't know. It's a week before the movie comes out. So what was your re personal reaction? Like, how did you deal with that? You know, at the time, I wasn't even aware of it. I think 20th Century Fox was much more invested in, than I was. So they were probably livid about it. Um, and to tell the truth, I live such a unlikely life. I'm surprised that anything of mine ever gets published. And so it's really easy for me to put these things in there because I never really see them. I never really perceived them as ever reaching an audience. So again, it's got to surprise or offend me first uh, because I don't expect it to reach anybody else. You know, it reminds me too that you're, you have certainly an absurdist quality to all of your writing and, and, and this one as well, where you get the sense by the end, I, I can mention the name of the, the first story you, you, you write about is this woman, Susie, who's uh, writes captions for, you know, celebrity gardens, uh, photos of celebrity gardens. And there's a sadness to the story by the end. Um, and, and I would describe this with, with a lot of your writing is that you get this sense that the past is 
meaningful and meaningless at the same time. It's meaningful to these people because this is what they spend their lives doing. It's meaningful to find out what how Ted adjacent you are compared to another person because that's how you, it's a bonding thing that that's how these people, the small talk of these people get to know each other in a, in a weird way. But on the other hand, it's completely meaningless. Like it has no real meat. It's not important how many blocks away their family lived from Ted Bundy. And, and out of that, you have to construct the reader, the writer, the characters kind of have to construct their own meaning from it. And that's fine, but you're not going to attribute a meaning to it. Like, again, I'm, I'm wondering how conscious is the absurdism in the, in the very philosophical sense of absurdism. The story starts by saying, we're going to talk about stories, writing stories, and the story ends with creating something from words. So it begins and ends with that kind of hat tip to the fact that this is just symbols on paper, that this is just a string of sort of nonsense of some things written down that ultimately don't make any sense whatsoever. That, that they're just things that evoke a reaction. They're not real things. They don't exist. That none of this exists. And I think in a way it is that, that makes it even more tragic that everything that's depicted inside the story has passed because it's saying ultimately everything will pass. Um, and it's that acknowledgement of, you know, romantic fatalism. Yeah, and... and you know, it's funny, like Albert Camus, who who wrote about absurdism and, and his novels are, you, he sort of defined it to some extent. And he, he does always say, you know, even though nothing has meaning, and I'm paraphrasing him, even though maybe everything's meaningless, at the end of the day, choose love. And you get that sense that you love these characters. And, and, and but you just brought up a really fascinating point that I didn't realize until you said it. The last few paragraphs there or, or you know the last paragraph really is very different from how you begin the the story the essay you begin in the like you said in this very kind of like i'm gonna tell stories this is gonna be kind of my advice so you get the sense oh is he writing an advice for writing or a how-to on writing book and then at the and it's very direct and super minimalist and then at the end you're right it's like and I didn't think you consciously did this. You write a, it's very beautifully worded. You're you're you you became a a a kind of traditional literary author at the at the end. If I'm I don't know if I'm if I'm describing with the right phrase, maybe that's not how you think of it, but was that intentional? Like you like you just sort of suggested it was. You know, uh the first person that I sent the essay to was Amy Hempel. Because she oh, I had love her her stories. That story, her sort of signature story, in the cemetery where Al Jolson is buried. Hmm. It is absolutely gorgeous. It is memoir, it's fictionalized memoir. And it has the through line of the gorilla that's taught sign language. And it comes the last image in the story is that gorilla in this moment of complete heartbreak as the gorilla is, is doing a thing that signifies a thing. It's just doing symbols that no longer mean anything. And to tell the truth between you and me, Susie, my friend who wrote the photo captions, she's a reinvention of Amy Hempel's gorilla. No offense to Susie. Wow, but that's really Su interesting. 
Susie is introduced to play the role of that other, that gorilla that is taught a symbol of, of signing, of telling stories with symbols. And then she's revisited in different ways to keep her present on the page, like that gorilla is. There's very funny stories in the middle of the Amy Hempel story that revisit the gorilla's progress. And then at the end, the gorilla experiences this enormous uh, loss that stands in for Amy Hempel's loss because Amy Hempel is not physically present at the death of her best friend. She's left the, ho she's left the hospital. And so to fill in that blank, we get the gorilla again at a moment of similar loss. And it's even more heartbreaking because if we were to see Amy Hempel crying at the end of Amy Hempel's sad story, it would be about Amy Hempel. And instead, when we see this animal suffering in this enormous way at the end of the story, it becomes about us. Yeah, that's interesting. Like we feel emotions. Like if she had concluded, uh, and then I cried forever or whatever. Right, right. We wouldn't give a shit. <laughs> right, exactly. But there was something else in the, in, the, in the Susie story, which is that the gardener said to her, every photo you see is taken before. And, you know, before the divorce of the celebrity couple, whatever celebrity it was, before the death, before the whatever, yeah. and the, the, some tragedy. And I guess that's the case when you're writing people's places and things, and there's, you know, there's some traumatic point, and these are all your your mom when you were a kid, or the gym coach, or the uh, or Susie, or whatever. These are all things that are happening to you before some traumatic event, and we only get hints of it. In you're right, we see it in Susie's story, perhaps, perhaps I'm saying at, at the end. And, you know, you, again, you cannot make the story about you. You have to leave it porous enough that the, the reader has a participation, that the reader, all the information accumulates in the reader's mind. And so in a way, the reader becomes the smartest person there. And the reader ultimately has to make pass the verdict about what the story is about. And the so reader is, please. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. The reader is going to have to have a way to put their own experience in and relate to the story. And that's why the story is so intercut with different things, because if you intercut with different elements, it's more likely that one of those elements, the reader is going to grasp that element, and that's going to be their way into the story. And you want to give the reader as many ways as possible to engage with the story. I like that. You want to give the reader as many ways as possible to engage with the story. So they might like either the individual side stories or characters, they might like the overall story, they might find some deeper meaning in it, like like what you were saying with the Titanic, oh, this is like, this is a metaphor for the end of Edwardian culture. So you're giving lots of, lots of outs for the reader to say why he or she liked this. Um, what about a story though that's very direct, like let's say Harry Potter, where it's like this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and a billion people loved it. And, oh, this is going to sound awful. I've never read a Harry Potter. Uh, but I used to love books like that. And I, and I loved those books growing up. And so that's not to say that, you know, I didn't really love those books. But since I started to write, I'm looking for something uh, that's less conventional, 
looking for something that that speaks to a bigger truth than uh, maybe those kind of books uh, speak to. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I guess you could find, you know, Harry Potter is basically about a kid who's lonely. His his step parents don't treat him well, and then he becomes a wizard. And there's there's this aspirational thing, and probably people to some extent relate to. Oh, my childhood was difficult, and I wish I could have become a wizard. So maybe with aspirational, that's really the deeper the deeper story. Somehow is that it's still about us, but you know we're just not wizards, so we get to read about a kid who did become one. Well, and also I always think that those stories, magic stories, superhero stories, they're always about power. And they pretty much always depict an orphan achieving power. Superman is an orphan who comes to Earth that and man, finds yeah. his power. And so they appeal to kids because kids are really powerless. And also because, you know, kids dread having dread losing their parents. So you show a child their worst case scenario that they're going to end up an orphan, but that they're ultimately going to find a kind of power. And so I think those stories appeal to people who really have no power. But once later in life, you've achieved an education, you've achieved connections, you've achieved resources. You don't crave for a kind of generalized power in that same way that you did as a child. So those stories no longer really appeal to you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting because then you think of like all these great novels, like let's, again, with Albert Camus, The Stranger, starts off the first line, he becomes an orphan. You know, he's an adult, but his mom dies. <laughs> and and it's almost the reverse of, he doesn't get power after that. He he sort of steadily declines in, in power. And it's interesting how once you have that structure and know it, you could play with it to create a unique story. But doesn't the stranger end with him throwing the priest out of the cell? Mm. And in yeah. a way on the on the eve of his execution, he finally sheds all of the presuppositions of his entire life. And he has just a few hours of complete enlightenment as he throws the priest out and he looks at the moon and he sees the moon for the first time in his entire life. And he realizes, I am finally alive. Hmm. And he's on the life, he's alive right on the cusp of about being killed. But that represents a, a victory uh, when you compare it to someone who dies without ever being alive. And so ultimately, his downfall after his mother's death is, a, is not about losing real things. It's about losing uh, fake things. That's so, it's so interesting. Like, this is so valuable. For anyone listening to this who's a, who's a writer or a storyteller of any sort, this is, like, now you, like, look at Star Wars as an example. <laughs> Star Wars, he's an orphan in the beginning, or you think he is. And I'm just taking a very direct, simple, basic example that kids love. Uh, of course, by the end, he's in a very direct way, he's fully powerful. And you, could, you, you knowing again, these not necessarily tricks, but these sort of primal truths about storytelling. I wonder if there's something about storytelling that is primal, that's sort of imprinted on our brain so that we respond to stories that, whether we know it or not, have this deeper significance. Like, I didn't re think about that in terms of The Stranger, but you're, but I reacted strongly to that novel. I read it like 10 times. And uh, uh, there's something primal that, it, that these stories hit you with. 
And I think that one of the tricks is if you acknowledge the fact that it's a story up front, like I did with the essay, uh, you're in a way kind of, you're getting past that, that nagging idea in people's minds that they're reading a story. You're just sort of staying it up front. You're saying Charles Foster Kane is dead, but we're going to show him alive. Hmm. And you are addressing that sort of nagging thing so that you can get to something more profound. Um, you're kind of acknowledging the mechanics of the thing so that people won't be focused on the mechanics of the thing. Um, the way that Brecht, uh, as his plays were performed, I understood that he had people walk through the audience and bang pots and pans to constantly disrupt the kind of trance that a play can be. He wanted people to not be engaged in the kind of illusion that a play is. He wanted people to be looking for the deeper you know, meaning where it was going, not just the, the sort of surface of it. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes 
to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I love this line, and again, this is talking about the, the the World War II writers. Each of these writers had outlived his horrors by embracing a new reality where chaos and absurdity were the norm, where loved ones died, but love did not. And I, I like that again because it's absurd. The stories they tell are absurd, but you do find this backbone in in love. For, for whether it's love for the characters or horror about the event, but there's always kind of like this this backbone and which which is the important, which ultimately is is the real story. And I'm thinking even like take old man in the sea, right? Who cares about a guy who fishes? But there's a deeper story that readers right away could connect with and which is structured even in the language he uses, which I which I find to be really interesting. Like structure is so important. And that's what you basically describe in this book. Yeah. And uh, another sort of Lishian minimalist thing is that uh, Lish uh, teaches that the readers have reached a point where they don't just accept a story. Uh, maybe children will accept a story, but especially these days, as soon as you say anything to somebody, they say, what was your source? Who told you that? Because the first thing they want to do is negate it by negating the source. And so Lish said, you have to create this kind of at least false context for the telling of the story, because people will not just accept a story anymore. anymore. They know a story has an agenda. They want to know who's telling the story, why they're telling the story. They want to know all these things about the story before they want to hear the story. And so you have to kind of, at least in an, in an illusory way, you have to create all those aspects of the story at the same time that you deliver the story itself. So like you with the exhibits in this case, those are the things. Because ultimately each story is that you write is about you and not the characters. You could imagine a memoir about you that's through the your your reviews of your own books perhaps. You know, like cuz each book is telling something new about you. A million years ago, when they rebooted Vanity Fair magazine, they hired Truman Capote to do a profile on Greta Garbo. And she was not going to talk to him. So he worked it out that he could go into her apartment. And he did the entire profile by describing every object that she owned and had on display in her apartment. And it was so fascinating because it was a look at Greta Garbo that wasn't in words and wasn't in sort of images of Greta Garbo. It was in the, the things that she had accumulated, uh, the, the, the objects they carried. 
And so in a way, that's just a really interesting approach to take it, memoir or biography, is to talk about the stuff in our lives, which was also a kind of thing in, in Citizen Kane. All those objects accumulating and ultimately ending with the sled, which was the primary object, was just a, another example of using the objects as the memoir. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating, the role of, of structure and, and, you know, people, places and things, the title, what, that, what does that come from? That comes from like, kind of like a first grader learning about writing, describe, you know, the people, places and things here. And that's your, that's how you write a story or what, what, what specifically does that come from? Cause I can't remember. You know, it, it, I just made it up. I thought it seemed like the most sort of boiled down aspect of what, what is this story about? And it's not even and things, it's just people, comma, places, comma, things. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, right. People, that's interesting. You know, uh, by the way, this is neither here nor there, but when I first, first time I read it, um, uh, I started by accident on the second page. <laughs> so the first page has the, when you're learning to write, never start with your most important story. So I thought the first page, the first time I read it, started with case in point. A friend named Susie used to write photo captions. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, this is, this is Chuck starting like mid, mid sentence almost, or mid paragraph. And that's like an interesting device that it throws the reader right into, into this situation that's happening. That would be very Brett Ellis because he did that in rules of attraction where ah. it just kind of ellipses into the story. And then at the end ellipses out of the book. So there was no really clear beginning or end. I thought that was really smart. Yeah, that's funny. And again, structure is so important. To, people don't realize, I think, how important structure is just as important as the words for telling what the story is. And again, that's what I appreciated so much, not only the stories you tell, but the structure of this, your writing style. I saw, having read Consider This, your book about writing, I saw so many different um, ideas from that book in the writing of this, it really kind of underlined for me, you know, how, how great these books are or essays or whatever. So people, places, things, is it only available at Scribd right now? S-C-R-I-B-D.com? It is. And, and they paid for it. And so uh, I have to, you know, drive as much traffic there as possible so they can make back their investment. Well, I hope they do because I'm an investor in Scribd. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so everybody go to Scribd.com right now and download as many copies as possible. Not only that, I did a Scribd uh, original as well uh, back in the day. So uh, knock yourself out. But uh, Chuck Palaniak, is that did I say it right? James, I can't say your name either. So <laughs> it's all you good. Altucher. It's like I'll touch her fast. I'll touch her. It's yeah. funny because years ago I met uh, Michael Chabon and we were sharing a cab and he introduced me to his wife and he said, this is my wife, I yell it. And he said, I never say my wife's name, I yell it. And I have never <laughs> forgotten her name. That was 20 years ago. So I'll touch her. You know, I, um, I went to grad school uh, in 1989, which is the year, I think that was the year Mysteries of Pittsburgh by Michael Chabon uh, came out. And I was going to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And I just loved that book. And uh, uh, because I thought I'm going to have an experience <laughs> in Pittsburgh, like this main character. And that book just held, you know, all this mystery for me. And he, he became a, 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 you know, and then I, his, his next book, I think was a model world, a bunch of short stories, just a, 
a very good writer. I've always enjoyed his stuff as well. And then The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Model World was McEnerty. Uh, I think his second book was, wasn't it uh, Boys, Boys? Uh, uh, it was about oh, the yeah, writing was it the program. prep school? Yes, and it, was, it made it to the Michael Douglas movie. Yeah, yeah. Something I forgot boys. what the name of that was. Wonder Boys, Wonder Boys. Yeah, Wonder Boys. That was a great book too. So, but that just brought back that, that memory. Well, Chuck, thanks so much. I, again, if you want to read a great story or great advice about writing or, I mean, it really is a, a, a remarkable essay. I've, I've read it several times. I've enjoyed it. And it's, it's so creative, creatively done. And I think it's in just, even if you're learning to write or communicate or tell a story, the ideas of, of structure and the, and the style of this are so interesting. It's, it's, it's not a long essay. You can read it in one setting. Go to Scribd or Scribd. I never know how to say it. Scribd.com. And Chuck, thanks once again for, for coming on the podcast. I really super appreciate it. Thank you, Always Jim. an interesting conversation. Yeah, it's, it's great. Thank you very much. 